0: So thank you very much for hearing our scripture today in a different language and for reading it in a different cultural linguistic style. Thank you, Alicia, for sharing your heart language with us. That was beautiful. I wanted to contextualize just a bit the language you saw on the right. That was from the First Nations version of the New Testament, which I was introduced to this week by the Bethany teaching team. This is a thought-by-thought translation of the New Testament, retelling the scriptures in an attempt to follow the tradition of oral storytelling uh, in indigenous culture. It's a gift to both First Nations cultures and to the entire sacred family, and I think it really beautifully captured our story today. As we soak in a new reading of a familiar story, I hope that you can observe maybe what happened in your body during that reading. Reflect on those feelings. We had different language spoken, we had different words or names for God, Israel, Joel. Take a moment and reflect, how did that feel? Let's sit with that feeling, whether it was curiosity, delight, discomfort, peace, questioning, or maybe even distraction. So let's take a moment to pray now to root ourselves in Christ as we invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Lord, thank you so much for the story of Pentecost and uh, for all that you have for us to learn. I pray that we would be able to hear from your spirit today. Amen. So today we get to look at the idea of unity and diversity. Very different people drawn together around the very same Jesus. At Bethany, our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation organizes our work at the church around three priorities. First, creating a cohesive Bethany-wide discipleship movement. Second, actively dismantling racism and pursuing justice. And third, embodying the diversity of God's kingdom. So we'll be looking specifically at that last third priority today. How do we faithfully embody our own racial and ethnic identities in togetherness, centering Christ? Silas set us up last week as we looked at the Revelation 7 vision of God's multifaceted, multi-ethnic kingdom, praising God together in heaven. This is our vision looking forward. So I want to work backward from there today as we look at Pentecost. In our story today, we have participants, and then we also have folks who view the miracle as if from the outside looking in. So our framing question today is, how do we move from that place, being on the outside looking in, when we're talking about the miracle of God's multifaceted and multi-ethnic kingdom, to a place of responding to the spirit, as we're called to unity together. So let's get started a few things to notice about Pentecost. First of all, this is my very least favorite story to tell in Sunday school. Not my favorite, I see it on the curriculum and I'm really discouraged, and I'll tell you why. Everyone gets so distracted by the fire. Uh, I hear the kids afterwards in the hallway, mommy, today we heard again about when the man's heads catch fire. Um, So it feels a little discouraging as a Sunday school teacher that that's where we get stuck. But as someone who has been thwarted, if you will, by the tongues of fire, uh, it was helpful for me to read a little bit more about this and to understand that we're seeing parallels and highlights of Old Testament themes in this story. The wind and fire representing God's presence, filling the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Now, as Luke is intentionally shaping this narrative that the Spirit is coming, bringing God's presence in a New Testament way. Instead of existing in one place, the fire of God's presence splits and rests on the disciples, and they become like little temples, portable carriers for the Holy Spirit. Pretty awesome. This all sets the scene for this unexpected miracle that we're going to talk about today. If you could put the artwork back up for me, that'd be awesome. So what's super exciting for me here is the function of this story as a turning point. Thank you. The disciples are there in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit, and even though they already have a blueprint from Jesus that they'll go to Jerusalem and all Judea, into Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the earth, even though they already have this blueprint, they still don't fully understand the trajectory of what is coming. For us we have the gift of the whole story in front of us, from Genesis to Revelation. It's easier to see the blueprints of this concentric circle going out of God's grace. This is the gospel with Christ at the center who's broken down dividing walls of hostility and reconciled us to God. This concentric circle pattern of a gospel for the whole world is visible to us right in uh, Genesis 1, all the way to Revelation 22. From the promise of Abraham to be a blessing to all people, to the Psalms and the prophets, pointing to a wider inclusion of the nations. And in Jesus' own barrier-breaking work, where he ministers to the other. It's such an exciting moment to me because this is Pentecost. It's setting the stage for what's about to happen all throughout the book of Acts, where the invitation gets wider and wider and the dividing walls continue to break down so that Gentiles, others, are invited into God's story as full participants. Acts 2 is like an appetizer or a preview for what's about to happen. That ripple movement out, tied together and connected by the center of Jesus. So as we look about, at, look into what happens in verse one to thirteen, we can identify several different roles or postures that people had to this miracle. We see the disciples who are ready and waiting, but perhaps with a particular agenda in mind. In Acts one six, the very last thing they ask Jesus is, "Master, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this is this the time?" So they still don't understand that the kingdom is already there. That the restoration work that Jesus is doing has already begun. And yet, even though they're not expecting it, these followers respond. They're ready. And they act when the Spirit acts in a very surprising way. Let us be like the disciples in this way. Ready and responsive. Open to the surprise of the Holy Spirit. Next, we see the pilgrims. They're in a posture of receiving. They're folks who have come expectantly. And even though they're outsiders, they begin to hear the works of God proclaimed in their own home languages. And lastly, we see those who dismiss the miracle. The insiders. Locals who weren't expecting anything special to happen that day. And who dismiss what's happening simply because it wasn't for them. Justo Gonzalez, in his book... Acts, the gospel of the spirit, calls this the disadvantage of the advantaged. He says that those who would otherwise seem to be advantaged because they're at home are now at a disadvantage precisely because they can't see the extraordinary when it's taking place. I would say that each one of us has probably had one of these roles uh, at some point. What I want to explore as we're kind of zooming in and out of the story today and as we let this text read us as Silas says, is how can we move from a posture of dismissive skepticism towards response in our relational life together? Psalm 146, verse eight and nine says, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down and the Lord watches over strangers. We see precisely this happening here. How beautiful that God, who over and over again in the scriptures tells us that he's on the side of the other, who looks out for the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, does just that in this first miracle of the Holy Spirit. In this story, God shows love, grace, and welcome to the strangers and pilgrims in Jerusalem by being home to them, even as they're far from home. Gonzalez provides another lens on this. In order to have the multitude understand what the disciples of Jesus were saying, the Holy Spirit had two options. One was to make all understand the Aramaic the disciples spoke. The other was to make each understand in their own tongue. Significantly, the Spirit chose the latter route. So Pentecost challenges any movement within the church that seems to want to make all believers look alike, sound alike, or think exactly alike. Because faithfully following the Spirit's leading involves translation. Translation. Gonzalez reminds us that the Holy Spirit was the first translator of the gospel. So we see that the Spirit leads here to unity and diversity. And it's worth noting that this coming together in Acts 2 wouldn't be possible without the work of the Holy Spirit. This was not a program that the disciples planned and launched. It was surprising spirit work. As we reflect back on the Revelation 7 vision that Silas shared with us last week, the multifaceted, multi-ethnic kingdom of God, praising together. Here we have a taste of that. And it's exciting to me that this happens in phase one of Jesus' plan. They still haven't even left Jerusalem, but we're already hearing God's works proclaimed in every language under the sun. So how do these pilgrims respond? This is unexpected and surprising. Willie James Jennings discusses the response of the pilgrims and the disciples in his commentary on the book of Acts. Jennings says that the pilgrims are asking the right question. What does this mean? And maybe deeper, what is God doing here and now? Because God's doing something significant indeed. God is revealing his Holy Spirit plan to his disciples. His love is beginning to move out. Jenny says, This is love that cannot be tamed, controlled, or planned. And once unleashed, it will drive the disciples forward into the world and drive a question into their lives Where is the Holy Spirit taking us? And into whose lives? I love these three questions, and I believe that these questions and questions like them can be useful in interrupting our own skepticism. Here, Peter addresses not only the confused pilgrims, but the skeptical locals with a passionate declaration of the gospel. And it's amazing to me that 50 days ago, this man denied Jesus three times. The passage from Joel that Peter uses is described as a leveling passage. In Luke bringing this quote into Peter's speech, we see two things. Not only that the last days are here, Jesus' new kingdom reign in which the spirit acts through Jesus' followers to reveal God's kingdom. But that God is beginning to pour out his spirit on people of all nations, genders, generations, and sociopolitical classes. What a word for us today. Here, no one is disqualified from receiving God's message or from serving as God's messenger. I'm going to say that again. No one is disqualified from receiving God's message or serving as God's messenger. The uneducated Galileans, first seen as second-class citizens by the locals, become siblings and then leaders as hearts soften. The Spirit works among those present to move on hearts, and through this miraculous and surprising outpouring of God's Spirit, a new family is born, united in Christ, and yet diverse, in a very many ways. As interesting, I think this early church section in Acts two forty-two to 47, is often treated as a standalone passage. You read just that, to think about what a church maybe is supposed to be like. But the way that's presented, uh, you miss the diverse ethnic makeup of this group. You might miss the context that tells us how different these folks are. Many pilgrims coming together to form a new family and they prayed together, they worshiped together, they shared life with one another, and they came together around the same sacred ground of communion. So now that we've taken a look at the result of the Spirit's work, which is a thriving and diverse church family, I wanna return to the idea of different postures with which we might view at times God's Holy Spirit work. Participants, recipients, and Dismissive skeptics. I think when it comes to topics of racial justice and reconciliation, especially at times in the church, uh, we can be tempted to play that role of skeptics most of the time. Maybe you're um, feeling like you're having these conversations all the time, they're coming up, and you're tempted to put up your guard, or you just wanna shut down. These conversations might feel unproductive, frustrating, Or even harmful maybe they feel circular and hopeless maybe they feel overwhelming so we can tend to put up walls when it comes to these conversations in an effort to protect ourselves so thank you you came today maybe you didn't know but you just still came you stayed with the conversation thanks for being here What we see in Acts is the spirit working to bring people together, which is a Joel-described spirit that doesn't discriminate between ethnicities or pigmentation or age or gender or class. And as I think on this, I'm drawn to ask, what might have happened for one of the skeptics in this story to change their heart, to engage this miracle that was happening? First, I believe that the skeptics were disarmed by connection, The quotations from Joel in the Psalms uh, connected the spirit work that was happening with what they already knew about God. When we are open to the possibility of connection, we can begin to move from skepticism to response. Second, humility and vulnerability were needed. Accepting that they didn't understand the miracle, and in fact the miracle wasn't even really for them, would have taken some humility. In this case, many were able to receive Peter's words. Verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart. When we're willing to hold our own assumptions with open hands, or to be vulnerable with one another, we can begin to move from skepticism to response. The result in our story, for those who choose to respond, is transformation. And we see in Acts 2 that transformation happens together, in relationship, Silas told us last week that to participate in the life of God is to participate in relationships. We see that the Holy Spirit moves these believers together. In the same way, let us be moved together. So I want to take a moment to share a pair of stories with you about my own experiences as a skeptic. About 20 years ago, Austin and I were on a mission trip to Alamos in central Mexico. And we went down to do some kids programs at an orphanage down there, uh, which was a blast and exhausting and scary and a lot of things. Uh, But we had a lot of fun going down doing this orphanage work. In the evenings, we would pile into our church vans and go out into the villages surrounding where we were at uh, with the missionary who was the pastor there. He ran Bible studies all over town. And on one particular evening, we visited a woman who welcomed us warmly into her home and began to lead a Bible study. I remember being so impressed by this woman. She had such a heart for God. She was so hungry. It was like she wanted to eat her Bible. She was so desperate for more of Jesus. And I was amazed by her, especially as a woman wanting to lead in her village. I thought I had such a strong connection to the faith that she was showing And I'll contrast that to another village we visited. On this day, we were playing tourists. We did a hike, and then we were shown to a church in that area, which was famous. It was about 350 years old. And it was famous because of a miracle that had happened hundreds of years ago, as they say, that La Virgen Valvanera, the Virgin Mary, had appeared in a vision and tears that she wept had planted at this cactus that infamously grew out of the side of the wall. At certain times of the year, the sun shines on the cactus in such a way that they say you can see La Virgen. This time, I felt disconnection. I felt concern. I began to feel a sense of oppression over the place, and I left discouraged feeling that the worshipers here were trapped in their traditions. Most likely, they were missing out on a real relationship with Jesus. It's important to note at this point that Austin and I were formed in the churches that we attended growing up. We were formed in certain ways. There was a heavy focus on the Bible and on service. For many, certain political values were held on level with biblical truth. And there was an extreme skepticism of other churches or denominations. If I'm honest, there was a very anti-Catholic undertone just under the surface. This is how we were formed. And in preparation for this week, I felt like God was bringing me back to some of my missions experiences to reflect on this. And it was painful for me. It was painful to reflect on this and see my interpretations of these situations uh, in certain light. Both in the surprise that I felt to be inspired and to have something to learn from my Mexican sister in the first village. After all, I was the missionary. And in my belief that my brothers and sisters in the second village were being oppressed by spiritual lies, I probably questioned whether they were my brothers and sisters at all. So, it was painful for me to look back critically uh, at some of these experiences with a different viewpoint and identify ways that in my formation, I was taught that my white American Protestant beliefs were the true and accurate version of Christianity. Certainly, no one ever said that from the pulpit. No one ever said it out loud at all. But in how we approach things like mission or Bible study or evangelism, the message came across loud and clear. I was the teacher, not the learner. And my true beliefs set the guardrails up on what was a safe or appropriate expression of Christianity. So what's changed? I've been coming back to Jesus' word picture in Matthew 9, that new wine requires new wineskins. Jesus' Matthew 9 listeners uh, wanted to... uh, wanted and expected God to work within a certain framework. And yet Jesus told them that this framework would have to change in order for them to understand and accept his new teaching. I can't tell you exactly when my heart started to change. Again, this has been a 20-year and on journey. But I do know that it happened very slowly, (laughs) that it happened through connection, through stories, through others' vulnerability, and generosity with me, that I began to be able to deeply listen and to begin to unwind some of the harmful formation that told me that I was part of the best version of normal, and that others should fit into my understanding or to my way of being. This is something that I practice constantly as I learn and unlearn harmful formation and lean with trust towards the Holy Spirit's new wine for me. And it's one of the reasons I found it so meaningful to read from the First Nations version today. Last November, some of our congregation uh, met together and read a book by Robert Twiss called Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys, which was stretching in many good ways. And yet I found that even though I'd participated in Heritage Month learning previously and been gifted and challenged to see God at work through different expressions of Christianity, some of the language in Twist's book was the most challenging for me thus far. For example, I praise God for his creation all the time. I feel like I connect with God through creation. But for some reason, hearing an indigenous speaker use the word creator for God didn't feel safe to me, it felt scary. Not only were my biases majorly at play here, but I was falling back to my old belief that I needed to use my true understanding of Christianity to create boundaries and protect that native believer, to keep them safe. In this case, again, I needed new wine. And we're all on a continuous journey of transformation. Here and in many ways. I'm probably the slowest learner in the room. But God is teaching me that there is always new wine in this area. So I wanted to pour some new wine for us today, to take time and soak in something new, and to encourage us to stay with that newness. Let's ask the questions that Willie James Jennings asked What does this mean? What is God doing here and now? Where is the Holy Spirit taking us, and into whose lives? Because spirit work is relational. It brings us closer to God and closer to one another. It moves us towards wholeness and towards community. I wanted to show the artwork one more time. Thanks. And reflect on the power of what happened at Pentecost. For me, this image shows not only the exciting invitation of ever-widening grace, but the centrality always of our shared faith in Jesus. And just this morning as we were worshiping, I thought also of this image about how God wants to work in our own hearts and lives. Wider grace all the time. Maybe you need that grace today, and you're coming in, and you just need that next level of grace Let's invite God into that. So for me, this image, it's showing what we can be. It's showing that a beautifully wide and diverse group can exist within the centrality always of our shared faith in Jesus. I hope you see that possibility with me. As we seek intentionally to build connection, uh, let us use the same models that the early church used, common ground of shared life together. Praying together. Worshiping together. Remembering Jesus through communion together. Not today, sorry, in a couple weeks. Let us invite the Spirit to reveal to us how we can live our diversity faithfully in togetherness in and community. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the story of Pentecost. And um, I just want to thank you for time to reflect back on these experiences. Thank you for teaching me, Lord. Thank you for not giving up on us when sometimes we beg you to stop with the new one. <laughs> Thank you for your consistency and your love. And I pray for our own community here that we would be knit together in togetherness, as it says in Colossians, that you would unite us around you and that we would learn and see more of you in one another. Amen. Amen.